Let's pray together. Praise you, King Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you uh, for your amazing love. Uh, that un- incomprehensible, uh, never-ending love. God, thank you so much for pouring that out on us through your Son. Uh, and, and for your Son loving us with that same affection as you love us. And your Spirit indwelling in us with that same love and that same affection for us, God. We just we absolutely love you. We cherish you. We, we prize you. And Father, I, I just pray right now, God, that, that as we continue to dig into your word, Father, that, that uh, your love for us and, and your care for us would be uh, just, just our motivation, God. It would be our push, Father, to, to dig into your word and to understand who you are. And God, to draw close to you, God. What, what sense is there in the world? than to uh, draw close to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the master of all things, uh, in a loving relationship that is initiated by you. It makes no sense to do anything other than that. So, Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, that would be our heart, that we would come uh, seeking you, we would come uh, desiring to, to learn not just about you, but to learn so that we may draw close to you. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would you'd bless this time as I stand upon the authority of your word but behind the cross so that you may receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up the scriptures to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, we're finally finishing up our series on prayer. Uh, we've done prayer 101, which was kind of a basics. We did prayer 201, which were roadblocks to prayer. And then we spent three weeks in prayer, prayer 301, which was how to pray. And, uh, and this, this fourth one, it kind of uh, fills in the gap there. It kind of concludes this how to pray uh, portion of, uh, of our teaching. Uh, but it also, it goes a little bit deeper than that. And, and tonight, I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to put on our thinking caps tonight, all right? Uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into the scriptures a little bit, and we are going to draw some conclusions, all right? And so there's, uh, and you're going to have an opportunity to agree with me, and you're going to have an opportunity to disagree with me. And, and all I'm doing is I'm trying to expound the scriptures and share that with you, and then open that door for you to, to give you that opportunity to, uh, to make that decision for yourself. And so that is, uh, that's the way that we will be going tonight. And so we are in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. And as we, uh, as you turn there, uh, just, just, a little idea on, on where we're going, uh, and, and I thought about illustrating it like this. As kids, everything seems big, right? <laughs> You're little, so everything seems big. I remember living in a, my house in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, before I moved to DeRitter, uh, uh, that, that I thought my house was huge. It was a two-story house, and it was a backyard that looked like it went on for days. Until years later, I went back and revisited that place, and what was so huge did not seem so huge anymore. The backyard that used to go on for days did not even go on for one day. <laughs> it was not what I thought it to be because as I grew, my perspective changed. It makes sense. Uh, well, this, this applies to our spiritual life as well. Uh, I know that uh, maybe some of you have, have struggled with this as well, particularly when you were kids, uh, but some of the spiritual truths that used to really bother me were that there was a, such a thing as a unpardonable sin, uh, and, that, and that that unpardonable sin was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, all that I was ever taught growing up, what blasphemy meant, was cursing 
the name of the Lord. All right, and so if you curse the name of the Lord, then then you are blaspheming against the Lord. Well, if you curse the name of the Holy Spirit, uh oh. Uh oh, you are in a bad, bad spot because this this one cannot be forgiven. Well, you add on top of that that my my mom had for some reason in her mind that that she had picked out this one verse, and you know what? She probably didn't even really do that. It's just the way that I heard it when I was a kid, and she read us this at least read us this one verse and made point of it at one point, and just one page over from probably where you are, Matthew five uh, twenty two. It says, uh, Jesus says, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so my mom shared that with us. And so I had these two things going on in my head. And the first one is, if I curse the Holy Spirit, there's no way I'm getting out of going to hell. And if I say the word fool, then there's no way I'm getting out of going to hell. So what happens when I would lay in bed at night? The Holy Spirit's a fool. No, I'm going to hell. <laughs> the foolish Holy Spirit. I mean, I would, I, and you couldn't stop yourself. I mean, I would try, Lord, please help me stop saying this in my mind. And so I would just repeat over and over in my mind, you know, the Holy Spirit's a fool. And, and I would freak out as a kid because I was convinced I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell because I can't stop myself from saying this. But as I grew up, <laughs> as I began to understand the scriptures a little bit better, my perspective and this is the way life and the way maturity ought to work. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul talks about this uh, in that famous love chapter. He says, uh, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And so this is the way that our spiritual development is supposed to happen. It's okay that we saw something in one way when we were a kid. And as we grew up, we... we understood it in a fuller meaning, a, a greater depth than we understood it when we were kids. The problem comes, even as adults, the problem comes when we look at a scripture and we don't, we don't get a clear understanding of it. All right, We look at a scripture and it seems confusing to us. And, and so we kind of have that childlike element there for a second. We see something. We're not positive exactly what it means. But what we do sometimes as adults, because we don't understand it, is we just ignore it. We simply don't try to understand it. We don't want to have any part of, of doing with it. We just avoid it. And we don't think about it anymore. And we certainly don't apply it. But the problem is it's still found in the very Word of God. And tonight I think we have one of those passages. Tonight's passage is one of those verses that you read, you take it at face value because it's in the Word of God, but you don't really want to think too deep into it because of the consequences that it could have on our own lives. And so that's what we're going to do, is we're going to take this passage and we're going to think deeply about it. And we are going to consider what it means for our own lives. Alright, so let's read our passage. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and then verses 14 and 15, because they tie so well together. It says... Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now let's start off with the easy part, okay? Before we dig into the meat and potatoes and, and really dig into the more difficult part, let's begin with the easy part. And that's that first phrase in, in verse 12 that says, Forgive us our debts. I really don't think in any way, shape, or form anybody in here has a problem with that first part of the prayer. 
Many of us have tacked on to the ends of our prayers just, just in way of what we've learned growing up and, and, and in the way of our own thinking, but we've, we've tacked on this kind of this, this into our prayer that, that just kind of blanket covers our sins, right? We say, forgive us all of our many you know, uh, sins, our failures is what a word that we use a lot, or forgive us all of our uh, shortcomings. And this isn't a bad prayer. In fact, it's a good prayer as long as it doesn't become what we've talked about a lot now, uh, un- thoughtful and meaningless repetition. If we actually mean what we're saying, that is a good prayer. Because uh, we, we recognize that we mess up. We recognize uh, that we need forgiveness. Now here is, here's the twist when it comes to this first part. Who is it that Jesus is specifically teaching this prayer to? Now this is, again, the Sermon on the Mount. And so generally speaking, you could say he was teaching all these people who came up to the mountainside and, and, and started to listen to him, okay? And so generally you could say he's teaching a, a whole group of people, but right there at the beginning it says that he was teaching specifically his disciples. Thus he begins this model prayer as our Father. So if we're referring to God as our Father, what does that make us? The church. The church, this is again a model prayer for the church. So here's the question. As the church, aren't our sins already forgiven? Hmm. <laughs> Makes it interesting. <laughs> when you think about it in that, ter- in that uh, way, as the church, aren't our sins already forgiven? In Jesus, haven't we already been washed as white as snow? Haven't our sins already been as cast as far as the east is from the west? Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 15 says, When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave, check out these next four words, He forgave all of our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, or that was against us, and that stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So we get there right here in, in Colossians chapter 2. We get this very succinct statement that tells us Jesus through the cross has forgiven all of our sins. Right? And this is what we've been taught. Jesus has forgiven all of our sins. That means all of our past sins. All of our sins that we are currently in the middle of. And all the sins that we will commit. Right? We are made clean. We are made absolutely clean. And in a positional sense, we are unable to make ourselves dirty again. This is why we talk about the doctrine of, of uh, once saved, always saved. Uh, you know, Philippians 1.6, being confident, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish no one can snatch them out of my hand so here's the picture Jesus saves us Jesus washes us clean and then Jesus keeps us clean Jesus keeps us saved that's what Jesus does so if this is true and I hope uh, that most of us are on board here about Jesus okay if this is true about Jesus why do we 
Why do we, the church, why do we, disciples, why do we, followers of Jesus, why do we, those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, need to ask for forgiveness at all? Why would Jesus say, forgive us our debts? Once we've repented, once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, His forgiveness is kind of like an umbrella. Just, it, it completely covers us. So it doesn't make any sense for us to have an umbrella, a perfect umbrella. The work of His forgiveness is perfect. There are no holes. There are no, there are no leaks in Jesus' umbrella. It makes no sense for us to have a perfect umbrella and then to hold little tiny umbrellas underneath it to catch water that's not even coming through. It makes no sense. Why pray for forgiveness if we already I'm about to give you some deep, deep theology. I would call it the Jesus loves me theology. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's all I got. (laughs) That's the answer, and that's the only answer that I know to give you. The reason we pray for forgiveness is because Jesus said so. That's all I got. I, uh, I think there's, there's a logical working out that we're going to discuss here in a second. But generally speaking, the reason that we pray for forgiveness is because God's word says pray for forgiveness. Church, pray for forgiveness. I have learned even when things do not make sense to me, it, it is in my best interest and the wisest thing to do to trust God in obedience anyways. Even though I don't understand it, I'm going to trust God because He understands it. Think about Peter. Peter is out there, uh, and, and he's been out all night with his boys, and they've been fishing, and they hadn't caught anything, and they came in, and they've been cleaning their nets. They're doing all the tedious work, right? And then Jesus says, go stick your nets back out there. And Jesus said, I mean, Peter says, that don't make any sense, Jesus. <laughs> you don't understand. We've been out there all night. This is the point of the day where I sleep, okay? And so, so this doesn't make any sense, Jesus. But because you said so, I'll do it. And that needs to be our attitude. But because you said so, I'll do it. And then what do we see? The catch is so great that he has to call in other boats to come help him bring it in. And so what we see is that when there is willful obedience to the Lord, there is a reward. Okay? And then secondly, after, after we, we get past the actual miracle part, what is, the, what is the response of the fishermen? Jesus says, come follow me, and they all follow. Alright? And so not only is there a reward to willful obedience, uh, but there is a relationship that is developed through willful obedience. And so here's the idea. God blesses our willful obedience and asking for forgiveness is part of what God commands us to do. So when we ask for forgiveness, He honors it through, a, through our relationship with Him. John 14 verse 15 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. So here's the idea. If we disobey, it ought to break our hearts because of our love for Him. Asking for forgiveness demonstrates a heart seeking to please God. Think about it in your own relationships, in those you love. When you have messed up, when you are in the wrong, and you refuse refuse to ask for forgiveness, what does that say to the person whom you love? It says, I don't love you enough to drop my pride to ask for forgiveness. I don't love you enough to admit that I was wrong and ask for forgiveness. 
Asking for forgiveness is a sign of a healthy relationship. Augustine put it like this, He who confesses and condemns his sins already acts with God. God condemns your sins. If you also condemn them, you are linked to God. So when we ask for forgiveness, it honors our relationship with God. But secondly, when we ask for forgiveness, we receive a reward from God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, which is the equivalent of asking for forgiveness, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So here's the idea. God responds to our heartfelt pleas of forgiveness or for forgiveness with mercy. God responds to our heartfelt pleas for forgiveness with mercy. It's like a couple I, uh, that I know. And this couple was struggling with infertility for, for years. Uh, and after years of struggling with infertility, the husband in the couple finally came out. And he said, here's, here's the reality. Something he had been hiding and something he was ashamed of. But something that was true. He said, here's the reality. I, I had a former girlfriend and... Uh, uh, we, we got pregnant and we had an abortion. And he confessed this sin. He was asking for forgiveness from his wife. He was asking for forgiveness from his in-laws. And within a year, they had their first baby. And now they have two more. God responds. And here's what I'm... Here's, here's, hopefully you get this. I'm not saying I understand it all. <laughs> I'm not saying that I have a blanket of knowledge that completely understand it. But I, I will say I'm in agreement with B. Harvey Branscombe, who I'm going to quote a couple of times tonight. He, uh, he wrote a book called The Teachings of Jesus and says, To stand before God in, sincere and on, in, in a sincere and honest manner is to be painfully aware of one's failures and sins. The attitude of true prayer is one of humility. It asks for forgiveness. And so, this being a model prayer for the church, uh, as a church, we must humble ourselves and specifically ask God to forgive the sins that we know we have in our personal lives and forgive the sins that we corporately have as a church. That was the easy part. (laughs) Now, we get to the hard part. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, here's the reality. Jesus, he's a smart guy. (laughs) This is our reality. If you want to take anything, one note home with you, Jesus is smart, okay? Uh, He looks over this prayer. He scans it from top to bottom. He says, I've prayed this prayer with my disciples. I've led them. I've taught them this model prayer for them to preach. And he looks, or to pray, and he looks through all of it. And he says, but I need to go back on one point. I need to clarify something a little bit. I need to add a little extra emphasis to one part. And this is the part. And so he adds a little extra emphasis. He clarifies a little bit in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins your father will not forgive your sins. Way to clear it up, Jesus. (laughs) Many scholars have taken this verse in different ways. Just to read you a couple. Some have taken it at face value. Our forgiveness from God is dependent upon our forgiveness of others. God doesn't forgive us unless we forgive others. Some 
have taken our forgiveness of others as evidence of our forgiveness from God. Some have made this prayer a comparison because it uses the word uh, as. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And so uh, as, as we have forgiven our debtors, so shall we be forgiven to the same degree. Still another uh, says that Jesus is pointing to the attitude of our hearts like he has done so much so far in the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, instead of just pointing to the direct action, he's pointing to the, the attitude of our hearts uh, in response to the uh, in, excuse me, in response to the forgiveness freely given to us. And so again, I, I, I start I go where I've already stated is that what I say to you tonight is how I understand. What I say to you tonight is how I've studied it and how I've comprehended it. But I ask you to pray and decide for yourself what Jesus, in fact, meant by this. But let me, let me give you two main things, and it's going to be broken down into several smaller things. But the first thing is, God's forgiveness does not require that we forgive others first. God's forgiveness of us does not require... That we forgive others first. I think this seems pretty clear to me in the scriptures. If you flip over a couple of pages, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. We're going to read it. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. What? Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. All right, so we see this first example. Jesus is in a boat. He comes to this town, and men who are friends with a paralyzed man bring this man to Jesus on a mat. And what does Jesus say to them? You're forgiven, brother. You are forgiven. What does Jesus not say to him? Hey, you know all the people who have mistreated you because of, your, uh, because of your circumstance? You know all the people who have looked past you because of your uh, condition? You have to forgive them first, otherwise my, my forgiveness is not available to you. We don't see that. But let's, let's, let's look a little bit different. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14 says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified. You can read there, forgiven. Went home justified before God. If the truth was that this tax collector had to forgive the Pharisee who was bad-mouthing him right next to him in the temple of God, wouldn't Jesus say, once he forgives him, then I will forgive him? 
Once he forgives him, then God's mercy will be poured out on him. But he doesn't. And in the same way, we are not the initiators of God's grace to us in forgiveness. We are not the initiators of God's grace to us in forgiveness. God initiated that grace by sending his son to die on our behalf. And if we think that forgiveness of others is what earns God's forgiveness of us, then we have lost sight of the cross. Branscombe says again, to claim God's forgiveness on the basis of one's own goodness in forgiving others would be to repeat the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. God's forgiveness is not contingent on our forgiving others first. Okay? Second main truth. God's forgiveness requires a response of repentance. God's forgiveness requires a response of repentance. Let's break this down into a lot of smaller categories here. And I'm going to point out some key truths, and then we're going to take these key truths and develop some uh, uh, propositions and to, to one final proposition to kind of help us understand the text, okay? That's what we're going to try to do. I'm going to do my best to explain it. Uh, and, and so just follow along as best you can. But when we look at the outcome of our salvation in its most basic form, we can break it down into some broad categories. Now, what I'm talking about is the outcome. What happens after conversion? What happens in our lives when we are saved? We can break it down into some broad categories. Number one, we're forgiven. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Number two, our relationship with God is restored. In Jesus Christ, when we are forgiven, when we have faith in Him, our relationship to God is restored. And then number three, we have assurance of eternal life. And all of this, all of this is accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we look at Scripture, at what, or excuse me, when we look at what Scripture teaches of what it takes in the most basic form, to receive these outcomes, to receive this idea of being forgiven, of a restored relationship with God, of assurance of eternal life. When we look at Scripture, what it takes to receive these outcomes, we only have one command. We only have one, and it's two sides of the same coin. That is, we are to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. Two cuts, two sides. I know that sounds like two, but it's really the same thing on both sides of this coin, all right? And so uh, we must respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. And Jesus lays out this principle over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. And I think one succinct verse, if you want to get one verse to kind of put it all together, Mark 1.15 says, The time has come, this is Jesus speaking, The time has come, he said, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is, our, this is our strategy here. This is how we respond to the gospel. We repent and we believe. Okay? And this idea of repentance. Let's, let's focus in on this idea of repentance. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 really hones in on this idea of repentance. The 2 Corinthians chapter 7 really gives us an idea of the inner workings of repentance. Chapter 7 verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. We learn two things about repentance here. 
First off, repentance is not initiated by us. I never want to be up here. I know I talk about repentance a lot. I feel like that's the ministry God has given me, to be a preacher that comes up and, and, and extols the church to repent of our sins. I believe that that's the ministry God's given me. And so you'll hear it a lot. You've heard it a lot. You'll continue to hear it a lot, okay? This is, this is something that I believe God has called me uh, to do. But repentance is not initiated by us. I, I will never call you to repentance so that you can make some decision on your own to do something. No, your repentance is a response to what God is doing in us. It, verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. God, through His Holy Spirit, convicts, and then we respond in repentance. The second truth is, repentance leads to our salvation. Repentance leads to our salvation. That's the rest of the verse. Godly sorrows bring repentance that leads to salvation. And so here, here, again, we go back to where we started. If one of the outcomes of salvation is forgiveness then logically, repentance leads to forgiveness. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, uh, that's a mouthful, says this, Jesus recognized that there are conditions to be fulfilled before forgiveness can be granted. God does not forgive without repentance. Such a restoration requires the cooperation of both parties. There must be both a granting by God of the forgiveness and an acceptance by man through repentance of the forgiveness. Sincere, deep felt sorrow for the wrong which God works repentance is the condition of mind which ensures the acceptance of forgiveness. That's all that was a long way of saying. Hopefully you could follow along, but if not, I'll just condense it back down to you for you. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Alright, and so some some key truths I just want to that we've just run through that I want to run over again. We are forgiven. That is one of the out the outcomes of our salvation. We are forgiven. We only come to salvation by responding to Jesus in repentance of all of our sins and faith. Uh, repentance leads to our salvation, and repentance leads to our forgiveness. One last truth that we're going to build our argument on, okay? And this truth is God's word commands that we forgive each other. God's word commands that we forgive each other. And in fact, it commands that we forgive to the same degree that we have been forgiven. Now that's a bold call. <laughs> that is a bold thing. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Which means what? Completely. Completely. Totally. Uh, you know, no, no, nothing left un- uncovered. Forgive completely. And so, our conclusion is, to not offer or desire forgiveness is sin. We do not offer forgiveness and we do not desire forgiveness in our hearts, then we are in sin. Now we've set the foundation, and let's connect the dots. Repentance, here's what we've established, okay? Repentance leads to forgiveness. Unforgiveness is sin. And At salvation, we repent of all our sins, including unforgiveness, before God. Alright? These are our established points that we are working off of. And and through these points, we can make these preliminary conclusions. If we are unwilling to forgive, we are unwilling to stop sinning. Does that make sense? 
Alright? Second preliminary conclusion. If we are unwilling to stop sinning, we are unrepentant. Does that make sense? Alright? So, if we are unwilling to forgive, we, uh, we are unwilling to stop sinning. And if we are unwilling to stop sinning, we are, we are unrepentant. And these conclusions lead us to two more secondary conclusions, and we'll eventually get to a final conclusion. But two more secondary conclusions says, if we are unforgiving, that is, unwilling to stop sinning, if we are unforgiving, then we are unrepentant. And if we are unrepentant, then we are unforgiving. If we are unforgiving, because... Unforgiveness is a sin, and we are not willing to stop sinning. If we are unforgiving, then we are unrepentant. And if we are unrepentant, then we are unforgiving. First John confirms these assertions. He talks about an unwillingness to stop sinning. First John 3.6, he says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And then he confirms about the unwillingness to forgive. Assuming here that hate is the result of unforgiveness, he says, 1 John 2, 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. So I think we have confirmation of what we've just concluded, which leads us to our final conclusion. This leads us to our final conclusion. If we are not willing to forgive, then we have not received we are not willing to forgive, then we have not received forgiveness. Luke 7.47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. If we have been forgiven much, for anybody who has been forgiven by Jesus Christ, let me tell you here this evening, you have been forgiven much. <laughs> okay? You have been forgiven eternally much, alright? You were, you were deserving death and an eternal death, eternal separation from God. You have been forgiven much if you are found in the Lamb's book of life. So, if we have been forgiven us much, then we love much and are willing to forgive as Jesus forgave in that love. But if we have not been forgiven much, that is, our forgiveness has been for a slap over here and for, uh, for something over there. It's been a little bit here and a little bit there and, 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 and little things, but not the great forgiveness that, that is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. But if we have been not been forgiven much, then we love little. And are unwilling to forgive. Branscombe again says, Jesus repeated over and over again that God forgives sinners. But such forgiveness presumes a sincere repentance. No one has a right to claim it who does not adopt toward his fellows the same attitude which he prays God to show toward himself. In other words, the sincere prayer for forgiveness brings one into a circle of ideas in which continued animosity against a fellow man is impossible. I love that. He said, here's the, here's the reality of it. If you've been forgiven tremendously the way that Jesus has forgiven all believers tremendously, then it will be impossible for you to hold continued animosity with a spirit that is unwilling to forgive. Let's take this home. If we have a grudge we plan on taking with us into eternity. 
we may not be heading to eternity with God at all. It's impossible. It's impossible. Jesus prays, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When we study all of that, when we put it into perspective, we see that what Jesus says is very straightforward. What Jesus says is, is absolutely at face value true. God's forgiveness is contingent on our forgiveness of others. Because our lack of forgiveness demonstrates we have not received his forgiveness in the first place. So the way I believe, the way I treat this text, is that this is evidence of, uh, of us being forgiven first. And the way that we apply it to our church to apply it the way Jesus did. Make it a prayer. Make it a prayer. Father, forgive our church for the very specific sins that we struggle with. Father, help us within our church to forgive those who have sinned against us. Father, help us to receive your forgiveness purchased on the cross through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So the way we're going to conclude our series, our mini-series within a series on prayer is I'm going to ask you to respond in one or two of three ways. First off, pray for the sins of our church and the sins of yourself. What you know what you're struggling with and what you know our church struggles with. Pray for that. Secondly, pray for the ability to forgive those who have hurt you, those who have wronged you, and then go confess your unforgiveness to whom you resent and ask for their forgiveness. That's a bold one. <laughs> That's a tough one. If we want to see healing, we want to see change, and we want to see forgiveness. And last but not least, for anyone in here who does not know the Lord and Savior, pray for Christ to reconcile you to the Father through repentance and faith in Jesus. And so our musicians are going to come up here and they are going to lead us. What I ask you to do is to take this time to pray. Take this time to pray. And if you need to, take this time to go grab your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, Take them back into that foyer and seek their forgiveness. If you don't know Jesus, you respond to him in, in that way as well. What we're going to do, guys, is I, uh, I just ask you ladies to play for a couple minutes while we, while we pray. And then after a couple minutes, Dale, I'll just kind of signal you forward and then we'll, we'll conclude with a closing hymn. Is that, is that fine? Let me, let me pray over us and then we'll, we'll take this time. Lord, I love you. And I praise you and I thank you. And God, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would work on our own spirits and in our own hearts this very evening. 
God, where we fall short, God, and again, it's one of those things that's kind of default to us now, but Lord, help us to really hone in on where we fall short on those places where we have failed you and we are continuing to fail you, and Lord, help us to pray in repentance of those things even tonight. Then, Lord, help us to think on a broader scope. Where is our church failing you in this community? Where is our church failing you in this world? Where is our church failing you within these walls? And pray for forgiveness even tonight. Lord, you, you teach us in your scriptures. That before we lay our sacrifice down at the altar, we go and we get things right with our brother. So, Father, for those whom we have struggled to forgive because of the hurt that they have caused against us, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would give us the strength to begin to forgive them, the heart that is willing to forgive them, and then, God, the boldness to step up and grab them and tell them, I forgive you. And, Lord, for anyone in here who doesn't know you, And I pray in your name they would come to know you. Jesus, for your love, for your grace, they would come in repentance, they would come in faith, they would give their lives forever. I love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.